Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and this is Things That Make You Go Hmm. This is your podcast to help you make the most of the wisdom and experience that comes with getting that little bit older. Let's get right into it. Welcome. Today, I'd like to welcome back Mark Nuss from Destiny Rescue. Hey, Mark. Hi there. Thank you so much, Karen, for having me back again. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. For the people who don't know, Mark was one of my earliest guests on the podcast, and he's someone that I like to keep up with because the charity he works for is actually something that's pretty close to my heart and I'm very passionate about. So, Let me ask you, Mark, just tell the people who are listening what it is you do and what the charity does because it's pretty incredible. Yes, I'll give a little synopsis for those that maybe have not heard from us before or about us even. um, Destiny Rescue uh, is a not-for-profit that got started over 20 years ago in October. We'll be 21 years old. Um, And we got started actually in uh, southeast Queensland in Australia. Um, by a gentleman called Tony Kerwin. And the genesis of, uh, of this rescue is Tony Kerwin uh, um, heard, uh, um, uh, overheard two guys speak, uh, bragging and speaking that they had um, been offered two children to have sex with. And that really rocked his world. He, he had not known about this and started investigating it and realizing how big a problem sex trafficking of children were. And he, he then decided somebody's going to do something about it and then Destiny uh, Rescue was birthed. And, and the facts, just a little bit of the background of the facts, uh, um, is according to the World Labour Organization in their 2016-17 report, uh, they estimated that about a million children were trafficked into the sex industry uh, um, on uh, that year. And we're, we're talking about industry that is now the illegal sex industry is now an industry that's worth 99.5 billion dollars plus a year uh, industry now that is if you throw nike coca-cola and a few other big corporations together you might get to that number of of annual turnover so it is a huge huge illegal industry it uh, um how it start uh, what drives it obviously is money and what it is is you've got sex tourists that travel in from all over the world into these different countries and they're their primary purpose is for sex tourism. And then you get a certain percentage that go off the children of those as well. Are we talking about, was he in Australia when this happened? He was actually in Thailand when he heard this. And Thailand is one of the countries of many where, where sex trafficking happens. And so, so you get sex tourists that fly from all over the world. And Southeast, the Asia-Pacific area, you'll have about 73 to 74 children a percent of children that are trafficking in the sex industry is in that region. And so that's why we actually started in that region first, because the biggest problem was there. And so, uh, and what this rescue does in, in, in short is, you know, when, we, when I've got an elevator pitch and I tell people what this year rescue does, is, I say this year rescue uh, um, uh, um, goes and searches for, for children that have been trafficking in the sex industry by posing as sex tourists. We go undercover into brothels, bars, every dingy dark hole we can find looking for children that have been trafficked into those places. And once we find them, we rescue them out of those hellholes and take them to our rescue centers where they get trauma counsel, medical help, and we set them also up for pathways of freedom. Each one's different. 
but which can include education and vocational training so that we can get them to a point where they choose their own destiny, not the one they were railroaded into. And the children get into these places through so many different re- uh, ways, through through uh, um, family members or or or, 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 uh, um, or, or even or even parents uh, uh, basically selling their children or, or what happens with most of them is children going looking for work because there's financial pressures on their families and then the wrong people get hold of them and they get railroaded to do something that they never dreamt they would have to do and if you don't mind I'll just share again my own personal story just to give you an example of how these girls find themselves where they find themselves. Um, so we've got a couple of different forms of rescues. Uh, we've got we've got our COVID rescues. That's when our uh, all our, our guys going to in the that operate in the different countries will actually act as if they sex tourists and go into these bars and brothels and every different uh, you know karaoke bars etc. Specifically looking for children that have been trafficked in those places, and and then the will under COVID rescues will rescue them out one at a time. Now. Um, I had the privilege to go with our permanent team in, in, in one of these uh, operations in, in Thailand. And I was sitting in this bar next to this, this young girl. Um, and um, it's, it's, each one of us have stories that affects our, affected us on a, a probably deeper level. Each one of these children we rescue affects us, but this one stands out for me. Um, it's probably the first child I was involved with uh, um, from a rescue point of view. And uh, um, and her name, I give her a name called Suki, but uh, it's not her real name. So anyway, you hear me talk about, uh, I'm just, just for, I know your previous listeners would, would know this, but uh, we give, we give uh, pseudonym, uh, you know, we, we give fake names because we don't want to, uh, um, you know, expose the girls that we rescue. We protect their identity all the way through. But here I was sitting in this bar, um, sitting next to this girl, Sugi. Sugi, initially, you know, she just saw me as another sex tourist, another dirty John that flew in from another country to come and use and abuse her. So um, here I'm sitting next to Sugi. And in our conversations, and as I got to talk to her more and more, uh, um, she started opening up just quietly more and more. And in its, I, at one stage I asked Sugi, how, how is it that she found herself in this bar? Sandling herself to Dirty John's from that comes in from all over the world. And, you know, she kind of quietly told me her story. And Sugi's story was she was in school with her 10-year-old sister. So it's we're not talking big age gaps here. She she was she was the older of the two. Um, so just a cut by a couple of years. So um, she was with her 10-year-old sister um, in school. Both parents were working, life was good, you know, like any any normal child, you know, she had her dreams and and, 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 you know, life was just going, you know, going through the motions, but life was good for her. And then, unfortunately for Sugi, her father, unfortunately, suddenly dies, passes away. Um, and very quickly, she found herself where she could see that her mother was struggling and struggling for, uh, for finances because the dad was the main bread on income, earner, although her mom was also working, but now she was struggling. And so Suki, out of her own kindness, of her own heart, decided, you know what, mom, how about I help you? How about I just step out of school? And in Suki's mind, what's just going to be a short period? Step out of school. I'll go to uh, the closest, uh, bigger city. I'll go and look for work and I'll help you. I'll, I'll send money back. And, and once you're back on your feet and you've got a better job, uh, you know, well, I'll come back and go back to school. So 
you know, Sugi naively, like what happens to a lot of these girls, naively went to the big city to try and find work. And in her mind, she was thinking, you know, why working out at a restaurant, or, you know, washing dishes. Those were kind of the things she was thinking, waitressing. So when she got to the city, unfortunately, the wrong people got hold of her and railroaded her and forced her into selling her little body to guys flying in from all over the world. And, and so, you know, for me, is part of the reason why Sugi stands out so much is because when I asked her, what is it that she was wanting to do in school? You know, when, if she could have stayed in school, what is her dream? You know, if you talk to all children, what is it you want to do? And you'll have, you know, even the younger ones, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a doctor. You know, therefore, I think there's this sense sometimes where we think culturally things are different and therefore they they are children just like anybody, uh, any other culture's children. And they have dreams just as all your own children have dreams. So it doesn't, so I don't know where this is crept in, but some people have got this, this motion where, no, oh, it's a different culture. So they, no. They grow up with just having the same dreams as your children have. And, and, and when I asked her, what is it that she wanted to do if she could have stayed in school? You know, you could see, you know, her whole, whole body language kind of just slumped. And, and, and you can see, I don't know if you've had it before, but when somebody tells you a dream or that they had, but you can see it's non-existent anymore. It's just kind of a by-thought now. She had given up on it totally. She can't see herself in that role anymore. And, and she kind of just mumbled off. Kind of under a breath that just wanted to become a school teacher. So here you've got a beautiful girl that went to go look for work to help her her mother and her younger sister. And she also wanted to become an educator for the next generation. That was her dream. But yet now she found herself in a living nightmare, not living a dream. And that should not happen in our age. This should not be happening. To see that lives and you get adult lives as well but for me with children you know here's a girl that's the same age as my own daughter and here she is forced to do something she never dreamt she would have if we're in a society now where we have taken a life and diminished it to being a product it's not a life when you go into these bars when you go into these brothels the karaoke bars a lot of times the girls, when they parade them, when they bring them through, they have them on, on little podiums and everything and, and kind of dancing and they're forced to have this fake smile on their faces and, and you've got all these sex tourists sitting around. It's literally like a meat market. It's, 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 it's you're picking a product. You know, for me, you know, you're sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm another sex tourist sitting there and, and these guys that are sitting all around your sex tourists, these girls are wearing, they'll wear, sometimes, sometimes they're forced to basically nearly wear nothing and just have a little bikini bottom on and they've got a little number. So this is on number number five, number 21. So this was number 43. And all they do, the, the, the sex tourists, they'll just point and they'll say, oh, I want number 43. I want number 22 to come to. So then the, the handler or the, the managers will come and take her and bring her and have her sit next to you. For these sex tourists, they're not really interested in the name. It's just a product they have picked out. I want number 43, I want number 21. So they have dehumanized the whole environment where these guys are just buying a product to fulfill whatever fantasies or whatever lust they've got. And once they're done, they just place back. And it's just, there's no difference whether they go and buy a bottle of beer or not. And I think I've told the story before, but uh, um, <clears throat> with 
we actually created a little video because, you know, just people can't believe it, what we actually see. And, and in the video, and I do apologize if I've repeated this, but this just shows the point of what we are facing there, is that our guys were, because they're undercover sex tourists, so in certain countries, you kind of negotiate the price for the girl, you know, you just don't accept it. Just, you've got to fit within that culture and, and still with that, that persona on as a sex tourist. So, because these guys will, yeah, sex tourists will even negotiate the price. They're not even willing to pay what they'll negotiate the price down. So, like I said, it's like negotiating for a product. And so our guy's there and he's negotiating price for this beautiful 14-year-old girl sitting next to him. And the girl's sitting next to him and here he's negotiating the price. He's negotiating the price to have her for the whole night to do whatever he wants to do. Now, when I say whatever, I mean whatever. To have her for the whole night. So negotiating the price, our undercover guy, negotiates the price. The price is agreed upon on a handshake. And so then the traffic is, all right, so you want some beer because we're kind of in that setting and we're like, yes, we'll have a beer, thank you. We'll buy a beer. So they bring a beer and we pay for the beer, sitting there having a beer with our girl here to, and we're going to take her away, spend the night with us type of thing as a sex tourist. And here's the thing though. After you're negotiating for like she's just a, piece of meat that you picked off the rack or whatever, the price of that one beer was more than her for the whole life. We have somehow, we've lost our way as a community. Now, I'm not saying everybody, but this is this really it still gets me. We've taken a life, brought it down to a commodity. That should not be. No child should be seen purely as an object, as a commodity. I don't know how we got there, but we, this is what we're facing. This is why this is the sick, the illegal sex industry is the fastest growing illegal industry in the world. And it's the second largest, just behind drugs. And we're now seeing drug, certain drug cartels and that also starting to get into the business of human trafficking, sex trafficking, because it's such a lucrative business. These guys that worked out that you can have a girl a child and people will fly in from all over the world to come and pierce it. But if I've got a drug business and I want to give something to you, Karen, and I'm by no means the saying that you're, <laughs> you're, a, you're a drug user, so putting it out to you, Karen is not a drug user, she's not an illegal substance user, before somebody takes a slip and it just goes all wrong. <laughs> but say you're, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a drug dealer. So usually I've got a produce the drugs, and a lot of times it's overseas in some not-so-good environment, but here I'm producing these drugs. And if you're my incline, Karen, I've got to have all these intermediaries and even go across nations, cross waters, all these different pipelines to get the product to you. Once you get the product, you use it, and now I've got to do the whole process again for you to get the next one and the next one, etc. But they worked out with a child, you can have a child in a country, and people will literally fly in from all over the world to come and abuse that child. We've diminished lives to purely a commodity to fulfill lust and desires. So that's what we are finding. And we found the best way, like I said, is to get to where they are. If they had a way to say, here I am, help me, they would have been rescued. But they don't. So we've got to find unique and different ways to get to them. So acting like sex tourists is one of them. Other ones is we'll... We'll also, as acting as sex tourists, we'll actually also do what we call raid rescues. So raid rescues is um, where we get actual federal police or specialist police units involved. So 
in, in a lot of these countries, over time, we've learned who we can trust and we can work with. Uh, it was a trial and error process, but we've got some real good uh, police partners now in all the different countries that we work with. So if we get established and we can see they're really actively, it's not just one or two children, that have, but they're actively trafficking children through, then we'll go, then what we'll do is we'll actually uh, set up a raid. So part of that is we'll gather evidence. Our undercover guys will go in and gather evidence, build a case against the established against the managers, against the people that are involved in there. And then we'll coordinate it with uh, usually a federal task force, police task force, or one that specifically, you know, in some of these countries, they've got anti-trafficking special police departments. And we'll set up a raid with them. And so once they've looked at the evidence that we've made and the, the prosecutor who will be in charge of it looks and goes, yeah, we've got enough evidence here. We'll actually set up a day when the raid happens. Um, our undercover guys, a lot of times, still there undercover, um, and I won't give away too much how we do it because I want to give away our trade secrets. But anyway, a raid happens, traffickers get taken to custody, the place gets shut down, and all the children that have been in there get set free. So the, there's a couple of questions. One of them is, how long was Suki there before she was rescued? Four months. Four months. Okay. Four months. Four months. Uh, probably a little bit longer. Uh, I would say probably close to five months. And the place I was in was actually set up for, so I, I was there for for for, for probably basically uh, the week leading up to the the, the ride. So, so this doesn't happen overnight, does it? It's not one visit, you talk to the kid and then you go in and rescue them. That's no, no, no. Because re- remember, you can't, unless they're real young ones, you can't just grab them and take everything in you. So just grab them and get out of them. And sometimes there's a real urgency. Uh, so we've had cases where within literally 20 minutes, we were out there with children and in some real dark and real dodgy places. But places like this, that's actually where tourists go to and they've got this real dark underbelly happening. Uh, sometimes we'll have to visit because remember, these children, when they meet us initially, we're just another dirty John for them. Mm. And sometimes you'll have to visit them four, five, eight times until there's a little bit of a rapport building and when we feel it's the right time that we can actually uh, even like book them out, but then explain to them quietly why we're there. Listen, not here to abuse you. This is why we're here. This is who we are. We'll show the little photos. I know I've told the story before because this is gives you a bit of a great example, but um, if you don't mind, uh, should I no, tell yeah. Chloe's story again? Because when I say Chloe, literally you can take her story and multiply it by literally thousands. Uh, just kind of a back step. To date, we have rescued, um, since since 2000, uh, 2011, we realized that we weren't keeping really clear records because when you're so busy doing the work, the administrative side had, had, had dropped. Uh, we didn't really focus on that. So we're so busy just focusing on rescuing these schools, get them, get them on their pathways of freedom and still developing those and doing all of this work. So. We realized in 2011, we can't, with our hands on our heart, say this is how many exact children we've rescued. So because we couldn't say exactly the number, we thought, all right, let's make it easy. Let's start at zero. So 2011, we went like zero. Let's start counting and keeping a clear record. So since since 2011, we rescued 10,361 individuals. So this is 10,361 individuals that were in the most dire situations, and they, they're now in, in a total different place. And I'll maybe recap a little bit on what we're seeing now. But when I, when I use the example of one girl, you can literally multiply it by thousands of what these girls go through. 
<clears throat> to just explain how the girls get there, but also the, the process. So Chloe, and I know I've told the story before, but she's one of the ones that just stands up for. Uh, um, so, so Chloe, part, seven siblings, uh, worked, uh, but they were more in uh, living in a rural community. They, her parents were what we call subsistence farmers. So they were farming, but they were just producing enough money to basically feed their family. And then they went through a bit of, you know, the season wasn't well, difficult times. And so the parents turned to Sugi and said, and she was 14 years old at that state. And said, oh, sorry, sorry, Sugi, hear me, Sugi. Chloe. And they went to Chloe and said, listen, Chloe, can you help us? Can you step out of school? Can you go and see if you can find work and just help the family? We're, we're really battling here. You know, Chloe, beautiful daughter, went into the village, spoke to her, one of her best friends from school and just said, listen, I need to go and find work. Do you know where I can find work? Because in the village, there wasn't really work. And her friend, naively, like a lot of them, said, well, why don't you go to one of the bigger cities? And I'm sure you can find work there you know, in a restaurant or you know, maybe in a, in, a, in a sewing or something. You know, that's, we're just trying to work out what, what you can do. So Chloe uh, gets a lift with uh, an ops on the back of a truck, but in Australian vernacular, the truck's actually more a ute and um, hops on the back of the and drives for about, oh, it was about two and a half, three hours to the, the closest bigger city. And the, and the truck basically comes and drops her off at a bus stop. But when I say bus stop, it's, it's not like our bus stops we see in the Western world, you know. It's basically just more a drop-off point. And it's like a half-moon-shaped drop-off point. And around, kind of just flanking all along this half-moon shape are all of these bars situated. And unfortunately for Chloe, they dropped her off right there. She doesn't know where she's going. She, you know, she, she's just got a little bag with some, some of her clothes and doesn't know where to go. And out of one of the bars walks uh, a, a bar manageress. And manageress walks up to her and says, hey, can I help you? It looks like you've been lost. She said, well, I've just come into the city. I'm actually looking for work. Uh, and she says, oh, well, lucky day. Why don't you come work for me in my bar? Just shows you how opportunistic some of this is. And Chloe thinks this is her fortunate day. How lucky is she? And she walks with the bar manager down, just literally down to the bar. And as got into the bar, this is still, you know, everything's kind of half shut still. There's no customers really coming through still too early. And she tells, tells, tells her, listen, um, what your job will be, all we want you to do is just talk to the, to, to the customers. You know, we've got customers, we've got customers that come in. And just talk to them and, and let them buy drinks. And, and then every now and then, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll just go on a date. And for Sugi, uh, for Chloe, I don't know what Sugi's <laughs> So I do apologize. Oh, my goodness. Chloe, get it right, Mark. <laughs> with Chloe, she was a 14-year-old virgin. She was too busy with school and working on their family farm that she hadn't really been dating either. So here, the dating concept, she was a bit... Didn't really understand it. But anyway, the manager just takes her through a door and down a, a hallway and opens one of the doors and said, this is your bedroom. This is where you will stay. So she walks in and she says, there's a bed, but there's this little skimpy outfit laid out on it. And she said, and this is what you'll wear for work. And so and closes the door. And when Chloe sees this, she she then realizes, oh, she's not sure, starts getting worried because she looks at this outfit. This, this can't be right. And, and then, unfortunately for Chloe, she hears footsteps down the hallway. She hears the door creak open, uh, open up, and in walks 
four or five men. And not to go too much detail, but they basically came into Breaker in. And in the beginning, Chloe fought them off with all her might, but they basically beat her up till she submitted and then continued to break her in for quite a long period, quite a few hours. But the worst case for Chloe in this, and that's why Chloe's story stands up probably a bit more for me, was at this high point of her utter humiliation of terror, going through something that nobody should go through, child or adult. They were videoing it at that same stage as well, so that they could sell it on the dark web. And also a lot of times they'll use that as leverage to control because they'll, there's, there's in a lot of cultures, there's a whole culture of shame and et cetera involved as well that really control, that they, the traffickers will use to control. And they can use that video to control and say, if you don't do exactly what we say, we will show this to your friends, to your parents, to your community. But they already had also, they would sell it also onto the dark web and onto pornographic sites. And this happened to Chloe not just once, but a few times. So by the time our guy sat next to her founder, he was a broken girl. They couldn't look guys in the eyes, always looked down. A lot of times she would be trembling when they'd be speaking to her because she knew where, what she had to go and do. And see, in these cases, you could actually book the child out. Sometimes they, you've got to be there. There'll be like sometimes some dingy places. They literally will have a little, they'll have these little rooms or even these, uh, 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 um, like a wire spread across. And you've got these uh, shower curtains hanging there to some mattress on the floor, on the side. So now we've seen some, some horrible, horrific places. But in this case, you could book her out, take her to your hotel room, and then bring her back. But they had different ways through fear, intimidation, videos, or all the way. She was totally in control. She might have not been in chains, but she was in, they had total control of her. So we booked her out as if we were going to sleep with her. But with, with Chloe also, we had to visit a few times before we booked her out. But she knew when we were going to book her out, we actually going to, we, we had enough time to explain to her what we we're about. And said, do you want to be rescued? And she said immediately, yes. We booked her out, drove off in the night, disappeared with her. But what we so what we do there is we just literally leave with her and disappear with her, and we take her to our, we take them to our rescue center. So Chloe, we took her to the rescue center. A lot of times, what we do is we ahead of time we we'll let the girls that are there at the at that stage in our rescue center, we'll let them know the ones that we rescued. We let them know new girls coming. And so when we drove into the compound, there were all these girls looking. And, uh, and basically greeting Chloe. And when Chloe saw them, her outer re her reaction was just over the moon and a really out there reaction. And, and then what we did is we took her in um, after she met the staff, met everybody. And so we took her in to show her where her own bed would be. And then what happened with Chloe, is, and I don't know if I've said this before, but it happens to so many of her girls. She stayed for two days. Just got up to go to the bathroom, climbed back in bed, and literally just slept and slept and slept. Because if you think of it for the first time in a long time, she had a safe bed that she didn't have to worry about. The door, footsteps coming down the hallway, the door creaking open. She knew she was the safe place. Where Chloe was always kept in that one room, and then she had to see customers. We found a way of getting her out of there. So there's different ways we do it because each situation is different. Like I said, some they literally keep them physically there. We even had in uh, with our raid operations, kind of 
uh, well, just just to step back. So, with your original question, so they in the beginning they just see us, see us as, as literally as another sex tourist. So, but in our interactions with them is when we quietly show them who we are, what we want to do. And for like for Chloe, when she we actually interviewed her afterwards with, because she had this over nearly overreaction when she saw these other girls was. She actually still didn't believe because she had been so traumatized. She still thought something that we could, she had no, all hope, all love, every, every promise she had been given, been broken. So she was still willing to go with complete strangers away. And in her mind, she even thought she might even die, but she didn't care anymore. She was just that desperate to be rescued. So when she saw the other girls, she realized what we said was the truth. So you deal with girls with different levels of trauma and different levels. Some have been there only a short time. Some of them have been a long time. And we've, we've, we've got into new areas where we rescue a girl because we do rescue women that are, um, that are 22, 23, 24 years old. We'll rescue them if they've been trafficked. So although we go for children and we find a trafficked adult there, we'll still rescue them because we would get into places that a girl was trafficked when she was 15. But she's still there when she's 21 years old. She's been stuck there for years and years. But we'll still rescue them. It's just like, and I've used this example, it's like if the lifesavers, they don't swim out in the ocean and, and they swim up to a person and say, how old are you? When the person's drowning, the person's oh, I'm 23. Not too old. You can look off yourself. Thanks, bye. We'll rescue them if they've been trafficked because they still got the same conditions. They're forced to do something that they do not want to do and they never dreamt they would have to do. So that happens to adults as well. But our focus has been children because that's a big, huge problem on its own. But if we come across adults, we'll rescue them as well. So, And when we do the raids, everybody gets set free, children and adults as well. I was going to say to you, when, you do, when the girls are taken back to the, your hostel, how many of them go back to their families? What kind yes. of percentage? Well, see, what happens then in our rescue centres where you start assessing the situation? Each one is different, obviously. So we find out how they got there. We'll interview them. We'll really work out as much as we can uh, uh, their background story. And that's when you find out either the parents were actually involved in their trafficking, sold them off, or a family member or close friend, or they went looking for work. So we really assess how did they get there because there's so many myriad ways. Like in Nepal that we have discussed last time, we actually try and stop them at the border before they cross into neighboring countries because they get fish baited through social media, different ways to try and get them to cross that border. As soon as they cross that border, they disappear for life. So we at Nepal, we stop them before that happens to the best of our ability. And but so we've got to assess back to the girls, we've got to assess once they uh, we've got so we can they get interviewed. So if it is if we can assess and we've got community workers that will help go with them, corroborate, make sure the whole process is safe. But if it's safe for them to go home, the parents weren't involved, there wasn't abuse at home, they just went looking for work and the wrong guys got hold of them and they want to go back home, we will actually facilitate that. Obviously, we first will look after the main first, first deal of trauma and also the uh, um, medical help. Some, some girls need um, STD medication. AIDS, different things, because, you know, don't want to go into the gravity of what happens to some of these schools, but real bad things sometimes happen, like, you know, so 
we've got to first assess them medically, give them their immediate medical needs help. Once they're a good place to travel and they want to go home, we'll get them back, but we still set them up on what we call individualized pathways of freedom. Each one is different, but we'll, for example, if um, if we assess the situation and the parents can't, you know, some parents just can keep on looking after them, but we always want to make sure that child also gets some education. So if it looks like the family's in real dire straits, they don't have finances, we'll actually give like a stipend to the family for a certain period of time. To, but part of that condition is that the child goes to school because we want that child to get the education, get the best shot at life that she can. And I use the word she because it's still in the, in the 90s, 90s percentile of, of children that we receive in the sex trafficking industry is still girls because that's demand and supply, the higher demand for the girls. We do rescue boys when we come across them. We just a short while ago, uh, oh, oh, this was, no, I think it was, this was uh, last year, we rescued, there was uh, 17 boys were kept together. No, they couldn't get in and out. And this, this trafficker had organized for, for pedophiles and even sex tourists to come in and basically abuse the children right in that compound they kept them in and we ended up risking them setting them all free as well out of that but um, most of them are girls so so for those that can go home and it's safe for them to go home we'll set them still up on a pathway free so whether it's in vocational training or education we make sure that they you can't just rescue them and put them back in the situation that way you've got to fix the problem along the way as well so you know for us we believe in the whole principle of feed a man a fish you feed them for one day teach them how to fish, they can feed themselves and their family for the rest of their lives. And so we've had to learn through through trial and error what works and what doesn't. And also depends on the child. So each one is so different. Like if it's more that they can't go back to the village, it's not safe, you know, the parents or there was family members involved or they, they just don't even have parents at all, we'll then actually set them up on the individual uh, pathways of freedom, including uh, vocational training. So for example, in one of the African countries we're in, uh, uh, at the moment, what we've done is we go and we do this in, in most of our countries. We'll look for partners that we can partner with that will actually help the, 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 the young teenager find work. Because some of them need money now. And we don't have these millions of dollars in their account and empty pockets and look because we're literally rescuing every week new, new, new ones. So, like last week was 85, res- 85 rescues. And uh, um, and we uh, and and the youngest uh, well, I'll actually the Nepal. Remember the Nepal? We rescued a young mother, so she was still a teenager mother, who was was going to cross the border with her one year old into neighboring country, and she was purely she was promised work, and also a boyfriend that she met online, and you know he looked like a Bollywood star, and like oh come and I'll look after you and your child, but it was. They loved having single moms with children come across because now they've got two for one. Because that child, even just that one, will go through abuse and be sold off, and the mother will also be sold. And they're stuck there for the rest of their lives. So we were able to, so part of that, if I, we were able to stop her right as she was just about to step over the border, not knowing what was waiting for us just on the other side. So... Every week we get these figures. So 85 last week, like this year, we were already sitting on 2,173 rescues. We're going to go blow past 3,000 rescues just for this year. 
So we've got to find partner organizations we work with because it's impossible to just, you know, we'll rescue, like we've rescued as young as eight-month-old babies, every age up. So we've got different programs we've got to work with. So I'll give an example. So in, in, in one of the African countries we're operating in, we found partner organizations and partner businesses. So part of one of our ways we do is we actually organize for a, um, a business. We'll obviously vet them, make sure they're good people and that they'll do the right thing. And we'll, which whichever direction the girls want to go into, we'll actually partner them up with this business and say, all right, and it'll be a vocational training program. So for example, we've got this um, one lady, she, she had built up her own little business selling different goods, her own store, and she owns quite a few different stores. So we went and spoke to her and she said, yes, she would love. So she, she'll take some of our girls, bring them in, and they'll intern with her. We'll pay the money for her salary to help. So because some of these businesses, they would love to help, but they don't have the money. So we'll pay the salary and some extra expenses to, to this business. And they train these, even young teenagers, train them up about economics, about how to run a business successfully, where to buy, where to source products, how to sell it, because you've got to give them ability for where they are. There's no sense in giving them an IT degree when they're sitting in the middle, like, you know, other South Africans and people that have lived in, in other parts of Africa will know. We talk bush or bush bush. Sometimes they what we call bush bush. It's like literally out of middle of nowhere. It's just a little, you know, little village of this. There's no real much infrastructure around it. Bush, out, wild animals are still roaming all over the place. So it depends where they're from. So if we if they've got to be back in that environment that they know, we've got to give them the tools that they can survive and work there. So 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 we've got these other organisations we work with. So they'll take this child on and then train her up, and then if she's really if she's kind of graduated and done well, a lot of times they'll employ her directly or she's got the ways to actually start her own little business back in the village that she wants to go back to. Uh, like I've used these examples before. We've got, um, I've actually got a video, a little video of myself. Uh, I actually was walking around a moon boot just when I was in Cambodia last. Um, I was walking around a moon boot. I, I did my, uh, uh, I, I tore my calf muscle because I, my, my girls wanted to race me, and here I am, didn't warm up or anything. Race thought I was still 22 years old. <laughs> race thought I had half tore of my calf muscles. So, and I had to go overseas. And, 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 and so I was going actually on this with this moon boot. You can see the video. I'm hobbling around with this moon boot. And the, the guys were funny. I went with a, a permanent team of, into a few places in, in Cambodia. We went undercover. And uh, they, <laughs> they were laughing. They said, oh. This is great. We only have to run a little bit faster than you if we're in trouble, and <laughs> we'll be all right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in this video, I went to one of our many partners that we work with, and this was a cafe. And th what this cafe would do is, um, is this cafe would actually take on girls that wanted to become patisserie chefs. And they would train them up for a two-year period to become fully-fledged patisserie chefs while working for them. And then at the end of their, their training period, when they've passed and they, they know their craft really well, they, they'll allow them to then either work for them, but there's, such, there's already such a high demand from other more upmarket restaurants for these girls to come work for them. because the, And this patisserie is so good that they actually came, oh, I think it was second or first place or uh, in an international patisserie competition. Because Cambodia's got that old French influence, 
And I mean, these cupcakes that they made, they had lots of other goodies, but the cupcakes were brilliant. It was just really good. My wife was just, when she saw the video, she said, trust you to find a patisserie on one of your jobs. <laughs> At home, I'm trying to keep you away from cupcakes and there you're stopping your basement. <laughs> I said, oh, they, they, they were just that really good. But our girls get trained up in there. And then we've got other, in, in Thailand, we had, even our in-house, we had like a cafe that we ran this was pre-COVID. Unfortunately, COVID, we had to close it. So we'll, now that it's all done and us, we'll open it up again. Uh, and we'll look at what to do with it. But we would train our girls up in all facets of the, in the cafe. So they learned how to cook. And I remember the one girl, you know, the first time she cooked, literally people took one, the, the, the staff, everyone took one bite and they all involuntarily spat it out. It wasn't like, you know, you couldn't even fake it. <laughs> you, you, you couldn't even just like, so, oh. Mm, oh, oh, yeah, no, Rick. It was literally just that about and, and But she went from that point, skill set, to learn to cook these amazing dishes that was restaurant quality dishes because she went through their training. So we had so many different ways the girls would go. And, uh, and, and even then, like our total outside of the box. Like, so we've got girls even that were trained up that are now nurses that we've helped with their educational path. And there are nurses that we've got managers, like we've got one, uh, um, one of the girls that was, we rescued her um, and she went through our, I mean, through a lot of things. And, and a lot of times what happens, and this is a thing that you'll find like if through actually nearly, a, it's a similar playbook for traffickers all, doesn't matter which country you operate in, they all use similar things. So it's through fear and intimidation, but they also break the girls down uh, uh, um, uh, uh, emotionally and also they nearly indoctrinate them and so what they also do and this is the thing a lot of times we've got to get breakthrough with the girls as well when they go through through counseling and everything else is is we've got to restore their ability to dream because up to that point all of that had been broken down and a lot of times the tracker figures will basically just keep on telling these girls this this is your lot like our CEO, Paul, he just actually came back from, we're, we're all starting to travel a bit more as well, going in, going in, doing our bit. But in one of his trips just this year that he came back, he was sitting next to a girl and she used these words exactly. So this will paint you a picture of where they, the tra- traffickers kind of get these girls to that point, where she described what she does, sleeping with foreigners flying in from all over the world, she used these words, this is my destiny. Now, that should not be. And that, for us, that stood out so poignantly because we are called destiny rescue. And those weren't just words that we flippantly chose because we want to rescue these children and put them back into the place where they choose their own destiny. The destiny that's for them, not this that they find themselves in. But they would get these girls to a point like where this girl would say, this is my destiny. No. And so we'll have girls. So uh, back to this one girl that we rescued. And they would break them down to where they just feel this is all they're good for. And they will a lot of times say, you're dumb, you're not worth anything. So when our guy started interacting with her, they had to visit her quite a few times because she was so hardened and jaded. And But Finally, we got to a point where we felt we could offer her a rescue and she accepted it. She got rescued. She went to our rescue center. And then she started dreaming again. 
within our, you know, start, started the finding the ability to dream again and seeing hope. And, and, and now she is, she's a mother. She's married, got a loving husband. She's a mother of her own daughter. And she works as a, uh, in a marketing company. And she also started her own little foundation that reaches out to street children because that's where her journey started before she got home. So each child has got total different journeys, but they all, we make sure they all get to a point where they can actually pick their own. And we try and give them so many opportunities of work, vocational training and education to give them options again. Because if you think of when they traffic, they've got no options. They've got no choices. And part of that is also then training them to how to make choices. Because if you think if your choice making, your decision-making process has been taken away and blown to smithereens, you've got to learn again how to do it. So but getting them and then getting them to choose what they want to get involved in. And so we're just so grateful that we could be part of that journey with have you got any other questions regarding that? Because, no, like, you know I, me, I can go for hours on this. I was just thinking that there's there's so many places I do want to go, as always. But it's it's probably a good point to wrap it up, to be honest, Mark. All oh, right, <laughs> it feels like we just started five minutes ago. Um, but, I've got uh, so many questions, but yeah, some well, of them well, aren't I, appropriate to go out on uh, air. Yeah, <laughs> but but here's here's the, here's the thing. Maybe if I'll wrap up on this is. We, we're, in, we're in 11 different countries and we're continually expanding. We want to see the end of this illegal industry of trafficking of children in the sex industry. We want to see the end of this in our lifetime. And part of it is, is like with your listeners, you know, I would highly, you know, I would implore you, share this out. Share this video out through all your network and maybe find some of the older ones. Share it out because the more we educate people, about the reality of this 99.5 billion a year plus industry the fastest grow the illegal sex industry is the fastest growing illegal industry in the world second largest just behind drugs education is part of the key we've got to talk to people start asking the questions start talking about it like i've spoken i think i mentioned this before but um i spoke at a, at a university they got me to come and speak about child trafficking and, and I spoke in front of all these future leaders, which I love, because if I can impact two or three of them to start thinking different, so when they're there running their own corporations or whatever they're doing or working as a lawyer, that they'll have that sense of to really say, all right, you know what, I'm also going to stand up and stand against this. So, but I spoke there, and at the end, I could see this one girl hanging around. And I could see that she wanted to talk to me. And she kind of took me to the side and just said, now that I've heard we've spoken, it's like my eyes got opened and I've got an uncle that flies four or five times a year to Thailand. We never see any photos of any vacations. So I'm going to go to him and ask him, what are you doing going there? What do you do? She said, I want to challenge him because I don't want to be the one that turns a blind eye and allows something to go on where whether he's willingly, wittingly or unknowingly contributing to such a huge illegal industry. Because we get sex tourists that travel, but they don't realize that they are fueling and funding. They might go for adults, but they unwittingly might be help funding this huge illegal industry. 
and education is part of the key. And then secondly, as always, I would say, contact Karen if you need my contact details, but we can't do this without having partners. When we sit undercover, sit next to these girls, not everybody can do that and be there. But we're 100%, we're a tier one not-for-profit. We work off, we live off donations, if I can put it that way. We're, we've got our financials on our website. You can please go to our website. You'll see 81% of all finances, probably even a little bit more this year. Um, 81% of all finances that we raise go to where they're supposed to go. It doesn't get chewed up in this huge machine. You physically might not be able to be sitting right next to Bill and rescuing Bill, but you can partner with us. So I just ask, have a think about, try, see if you would like to partner with us so that even if you're sitting behind a computer and, uh, and I've used this example, I've got a friend who's an accountant, he's working with, he's doing tax and especially all the time he said, it's just a flat out of full line and he's like, and he needs to take a breather. He just looks at, he's got a little thing he's put up there for himself because he's a rescue partner with us. He donates every month. He said, I look back and I look at that and you go, you know what? This is not so bad. He said, because right now, I am in the process of rescuing another girl. I'm not being physically next to her, but I'm enabling those guys to be there and pull her out. And I am changing destinies while I'm sitting doing my own work. So I would like to invite people to join with us. We're an awesome family to be part of. And thanks so much, Karen, you, for being so awesome about bringing me on and dealing with my ramblings and my <laughs> going off topics and everything else. But you're amazing, amazing. I really, really appreciate you a lot. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. And, and just to let everybody know that there are links to Destiny Rescue and to um, donate on the webpage. And I'll put links on the video as well so that people can find that easily. But yes, if there are any businesses that want to get in touch with them directly, get in touch with me and I'll pass on Mark's details to you. Yes, please. Yeah, that'd be awesome. He can have a chat, which would be yes. absolutely wonderful. Look, it's my pleasure, Mark. This is, honest to goodness, the least I can do, apart from donating, is we just want to get the word out there because this is no, something you... that impacts all of us. You know, it's at some level, nobody I know would condone this kind of thing. But like, like you just said, might be somebody who you know is going over to Thailand or Vietnam by themselves three or four yep. times a year or once yep. a year or whatever. Yeah. You don't know. You don't no. know. You just don't know. And, and Karen, you've been an awesome supporter to us. I'm just putting it out there so people know she's been an amazing supporter to us. So, yeah, thank you so much, Karen. Um, bless you. And thanks so much for your wonderful uh, uh, podcasts and uh, and uh, I love your setting you've got in the background, by the way. It's very, very <laughs> spring and beautiful. So. <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah, thank you so much again for having us. And if anybody wants to reach out like Karen said, please contact her. She'll gladly share my contact details. And once again, I've just touched the I've been on the surface tops because, and, and I know they were, we were working a while to go one direction. And I think I went in the puddle different directions. I just, it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, thanks again, Karen. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great ideas that can make a difference in your everyday life. Until next time.